1: A quick listener note, this podcast contains adult language and descriptions of violence.
2: Most criminals know the marvels of modern law enforcement, and they know the effects of a carefully prepared alibi. But there's one way. They won't talk, but their emotions will. It's simply a matter of reading the suspect's emotions and pressing in the right direction until he breaks.
1: From the moment we first read Charles Raby's confession, it struck us as something out of a movie, sort of improbable. He denies, 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 and then breaks down and confesses. This is how Sergeant Wayman Allen described it in the police report. An actor will read it for you.
3: Allen advised Raby that this sergeant knew he was not being truthful. Alan advised
1: Raby that he had been identified jumping over a fence leaving Edna's house Thursday night at about the time she was killed. Raby looked down at the floor and his eyes filled with tears. Raby stated, I was there, I went in through the front door, and I saw her on the living room floor.
4: Our fascination with confessions is tied to this idea of a uniquely gifted interrogator. Someone who can get a suspect to give it all up. That was Allen's reputation within the Houston Police Homicide Squad. Sergeant Wayne Wendell was his partner. They worked Edna Franklin's murder together.
2: Sergeant Allen was the cream de la cream of detectives and homicide. He was uh, just a joy to work with because he was
3: so dedicated and so concentrated on the mission to clear the case. I worked two years with him.
2: Gosh, it was it was a just a real joy to work with him. He's dead now, but uh, he could talk the horns off a of billy goat.
4: Allen died in 2019. Wendell wrote about him on an online memorial page. He said that Allen often operated at full throttle, and he lauded him for his interrogation skills. Quote. I actually felt sorry for Crooks sitting across the table from him in the interrogation room. From The Intercept, I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. Welcome back to Murderville, Texas. Episode 4 Confessions. First, let's review. 72-year-old Edna Franklin was brutally murdered in her home in Houston on October 15, 1992. Her grandsons lived with her. They were the ones to find her body, just after 10 p.m. that night. The cops asked them if they had any idea who might have killed her. They named two of their own friends. Edward Bangs, who'd been painting the outside of Franklin's house in the days before the murder, and 22-year-old Charles Raby, who was kind of an asshole. He'd supposedly gotten sideways with Franklin a couple weeks before her murder. And he'd recently been released on parole after serving several years for the armed robbery of a convenience store. This caught the cops' attention. Just four days later, they arrested Charles and secured a confession. That confession would be the most important piece of evidence connecting him to the murder. No physical evidence tied him to the scene. And they have never found a murder weapon. Despite the lack of evidence, the state tried Charles for murder in the summer of 1994. He was convicted and sentenced to death.
1: We told you that false confessions happen more than you would think. And maybe you're still skeptical about that. But consider this. To date, 15% of death row exonerations have involved a false confession. When we first read the confession and police report in Charles's case, we were struck by how little information they contained. There's no transcript of the interrogation, let alone a video— And it's just impossible
4: to know what happened in that room. To be fair, it wasn't exactly standard practice for cops to record these kinds of interactions back in the early 90s. A lot of them just didn't have the equipment. But we know that in this era, the Houston PD did have the equipment. In fact, they routinely recorded interrogations of robbery suspects. For whatever reason... They didn't see fit to do so in homicide cases. Nevertheless, we do know some things about Charles' interrogation, like what the room looked like, because that's what's in the police report. The walls were painted white. There were desks, computers, and rolling chairs. And Charles wore a white tank top and blue jeans, as well as white tennis shoes. All of this would be fine, except these details are irrelevant compared to the mechanics of the interrogation itself, which are not included. Instead, there's only Sergeant Allen's summary of what Charles told him up until the point that Allen says, I know you're lying, and Charles supposedly breaks down in tears.
1: The lack of detail also extends to the confession itself. We're going to have an actor read the confession for you now, so you can see what we're talking about. But we have to warn you, it's pretty confusing. The only thing we've taken out are the addresses and phone numbers of the people Charles named.
5: My name is Charles Douglas Raby. I am 22 years old. I was born in Houston, Texas on March 22, 1970. I last went to school at Sam Houston and have a total of 10 years of formal education. I am at the Houston Police Department's Homicide Division. Today is Monday, October 19, 1992, and it is approximately 1.25pm. Sergeant Allen read me my rights on two occasions this afternoon. I fully understand my rights, and I have gave up my right to remain silent and write to an attorney. I have not been threatened or promised anything in return to make a statement. I told Sergeant Allen that I'd not been at Lee's house on Westford Street Thursday night. I was not telling the truth at first because I was scared. I decided to tell the truth and get this over with. I am unemployed at the present time. I can read and write the English language. I can see this statement as it is being typed by Sergeant Allen on the monitor. On Thursday, October fifteenth, 1992, I had gotten up that morning and had gone over to my little brother, Robert Butler. Robert was in school, and I visited with a friend by the name of Anthony. Anthony is a Hispanic male, about 25, 26 years old. Anthony lives next door to Robert. My little brother came home after school, and I stayed at his house until sometime that afternoon. My little brother Robert gave me a ride on his bicycle to Jimmy's house. We called Jimmy Crawdad. Jimmy lives off of Lower Coppy Street. Jimmy was not there. I visited with his mother for a while. I had a little pocket knife and I was cleaning my fingernails on Jimmy's front porch. I believe my pocket knife was an old timer. I stayed there at Jimmy's for an hour. I left there and walked over my ex-mother-in-law's house. I talked to Barbara, Dusty, and Blaine. I left their house and walked over to a friend of mine named Larry. Larry lives off of Irvington. I had been drinking beer and whiskey. I only talked to Larry for a few minutes. I left Larry's house and walked over to Melody's house on Post Street. I talked to her mother and I left there. I walked over to John Phillips' house on Wainwright Street. I asked John's grandmother if he was at home, and she told me John was not there. I walked over off Cross Timber Street to try and locate a friend named Pookie. Pookie had moved. I went to a little store and bought some wine. I think it was some Mad Dog 2020. I drank the bottle of wine, and then I walked over to Lee's house on Westford Street. Lee lives with his grandmother, Edna, and his cousin, Eric. There's an old Volkswagen in the driveway at their house. I walked up to the front door. The front door had a screen-type door in front of a wooden door. I knocked on the door. I did not hear anyone. I just went inside. I sat down for a little bit on the couch. I called out when I got inside, but I did not hear anyone say anything. I heard Edna in the kitchen. I walked into the kitchen and grabbed Edna. Edna's back was to me and I just grabbed her. I I remember struggling with her and I was on top of her. I know I had a knife, but I do not remember taking it out. We were in the living room when we went to the floor. I saw Edna covered in blood and underneath her. I went to the back of the house and went out the back door that leads into the backyard. Shortly after I had left Lee's house on Westford, I was approached by a man, and this man told me something like, I had better not catch you in my yard, jumping his fences. Or something like that. I woke up later on the ground near the hardy toll road and cross timbers. I walked home on Cedar Hill from there. I remember feeling sticky, and I had blood on my hands. I washed my hands off in a water puddle that is near the pipeline by the hardy toll road. I do not remember what I did with my knife. The next day, I knew I had killed Edna. I remembered being at her house and struggling with her, and Edna was covered with blood when I left. I think I was wearing a black concert shirt. The blue jeans I'm wearing and my Puma tennis shoes. I also had on a black jacket. I have read this, my statement consisting of three pages.
1: We've both written a bunch of stories over the years about false confessions. And for us, this whole narrative raises red flags. There's a lot of irrelevant detail, walking here and there and back again. But when it gets to the crime, there's very little detail. There's also some weird language that echoes verbatim what's in the police report. For example, investigators referred to Franklin as Edna. And in the confession, this is also how they said Charles referred to her. But as he told us, he didn't even know her first name.
2: I mean, all this time I'm just telling him I, I don't know. I don't know the named Edna. I, I, and I swear to God, I did not know Miss Franklin's first name was Edna. I got a cousin named Edna, and I told myself I got a cousin named Edna, so I'm not talking about that. But he, he never mentioned that it was Lee and Eric's grandmother until later on. And then it then it hit me. Okay, Miss Franklin. Okay.
4: And there are facts that we know the cops provided Charles before taking his confession, including that a man had been seen jumping the neighbor's fence on the night of the murder. We know what we see in all this, but we wanted an expert to weigh in.
6: So my name's Dr. Jeff Kukuka. I'm an associate professor of psychology at Towson University in Maryland.
1: Among the things that Kukuka studies are interrogation techniques and false confessions. He's part of a second generation of psychologists studying this stuff, and he's pretty much a rising star in the field. We gave him a brief summary of the case, along with police reports and trial transcripts, the same kinds of documents he routinely gets when asked to review a
6: case. My gut reaction to reading all this stuff is this could be a case study of why interrogation should be recorded. Because there is so much he said, she said here, so many inconsistencies, so little clarity on what actually happened. And the sad thing is we're never going to know what actually happened.
4: There are a lot of things about Charles's confession that give Kakuka pause, like the
6: speed of it. This confession goes from zero to 60, you know, maybe faster than any confession I've ever seen. You know, he was denying guilt, denying guilt. And I said to him, well, we think you're lying. And then all of a sudden he started crying and confessed and that was it. Like, that's not how it works. Like, having read these things and seen these things, that's not how it works.
4: Generally speaking, confessions develop over time, Kakuka said, getting more and more detailed as they go. And he's
1: skeptical about some of the details included in Charles's confession.
6: I would love to know where these details are coming from you know, the old Volkswagen in the driveway and the, um, you know, the, the window and the, (laughs) I I like, I, I find it very hard to believe that he remembers the old Volkswagen in the driveway, but doesn't remember what he did with the knife. It just, it doesn't add up. There is little doubt in my mind that something happened in there that we don't know about whether it was, you know, coercive or not. I don't know. But that's just not how these stories evolve. I'm so glad you brought up the VW thing. I say this as a VW driver.
4: The broken down VW and... The other thing that gets me, and it's a small thing, which is where he's describing the door as a wooden door. And I'm like, who says that? Who's like, oh, I went over to the house, they had a screen door and a wooden door. Like, you don't say that. But you go look at the police report, and of course the crime scene guy is describing it. There's an old broken down V-dub in the, in, in, on the property, and there's a wooden front door. I mean, you could see a crime scene investigator being like, it's a hollow core door or it's a metal door. But your random person is not going to be like... Yeah, it was a wooden door. Like, do you know what I'm saying? It just struck me as so bizarre.
6: And that's exactly the sort of detail that you could either feed him or sort of slow walk him to.
1: Then there's the thing about jumping the neighbor's fence.
4: One of the things that would seem to me to be like a perfect holdback fact, so to speak, you know, if you were going into an interrogation situation, would be the idea that somebody jumped the back fence because, you know, there's this neighbor and somebody did jump that back fence. It might make sense that that was connected to the murder. So I would think as an investigator, I certainly would not want to spill that to anybody because I'd want to see if they came back with it. Well, if you read to the police report, they told him that.
6: <laughs> the last thing an interrogator should be doing is walking in the room and immediately laying all their cards on the table because a savvy liar is going to take those cards and incorporate them into their lie, right? You should go in, withhold that information, get them to tell their side of the story, and then you can identify contradictions with known facts. They hardly did that here. We'll never know, but it makes me suspicious about the other details that they might have fed to him to make the confession seem persuasive.
1: And it's not just the details that are there that trouble him. It's also those that aren't there. Kukuka told us that he went through the confession and circled every verb in the section where Charles describes the murder.
6: The verbs in here are so innocuous. I walked into the kitchen. I grabbed her. I remember struggling. We went to the floor. These are very sort of passive verbs, right? There's nothing in here like I tackled her. I stabbed her. I hit her. She scratched me. The verbs in this sentence are all very benign. I don't really know what to make of that. I don't know if this is, this is deliberate or not on, on the part of the, you know, the, the officers who sort of took, and I, I, I say took kind of in quotes because I, I, have, I have doubts about whether this confession was really dictated or not.
4: There's another thing about this confession that we need to get into. Remember when we told you about the suppression hearing and how Charles seemed to double down on the truth of his confession? We want to try to unpack that a bit. Charles has always been clear in his conversations with us that the reason he gave the confession was that he was worried about his girlfriend, Mary Alice Gomez, and her infant son, Christopher. He thought that the cops might try to arrest her if he didn't tell them what they wanted to hear.
1: But there's another piece of this, too. And it might sound a little out there. For a long time, Charles told us, he wasn't sure if he'd committed the murder or not. This is also something that happens with false confessions, and with memory in general. Take the case of the Beatrice Six a group of friends in small-town Nebraska who were convicted of raping and killing an elderly woman in 1985. All but one of them gave false confessions after being questioned by a police psychologist who convinced them that they had repressed the memory of committing the crime. But one of the six insisted on his innocence, and ultimately, they were all cleared by DNA.
4: And then there's the Norfolk Four a group of sailors accused of raping and murdering a Virginia woman in 1997. All of the men told the police they had nothing to do with the crime. But each of them ended up confessing anyway. And one of them came to believe he was guilty and became the star witness for the state. They were eventually cleared by DNA, too. These are pretty extreme examples, but the truth is that people
1: develop false memories about all kinds of things, from the most inconsequential childhood experiences to major life-altering events. It feels counterintuitive, but we've all experienced some version of this.
4: And science tells us that memory is unreliable. People think that our minds record things exactly as they happen, and then that memory is stored intact. But that's not how it works. Our brains reconstruct memories every time we recall them. And research has shown that things like trauma or drug and alcohol abuse can further distort our recollections. Charles had a history of violence. He'd broken the law plenty of times. He'd been in prison. And... His memory of the night Edna Franklin was killed was pretty sketchy. He was really, really drunk at the time. And on pills.
3: For me, like, the idea of, like, memory itself being so fallible was really important.
1: This is Mike Giglio. He's a journalist who used to write for the Houston Press.
3: I know that in every interview I've ever done since as a journalist, that has, like, informed, you know, even the way I, like, approach stories. It's like, it was so, for me, enlightening just to realize how memories can change and people can think that they're telling the truth and and, and really actually have kind of composite picture of what happened based on all these kind of, you know, questionable, you know, ways that they built their memory.
1: He wrote a bunch of stories about Charles' case, not at the trial stage, but years after he was convicted including one from 2010 that was all about the confession and the questions swirling around it.
3: And so it's not that he would confessed, right? It's like that he, he stuck to the confession. It'd be much simpler if he confessed in the interrogation room and then like right away or, or at trial had gone back on it. But he basically, you know, he admitted it twice.
1: Giglio went to visit Charles on death row.
3: I was really struck that he was still wrestling with his own perception of himself. Like, there's a quote in the piece, like, did I do it? Could I do it? He wasn't even 100% sure. But like, I thought what was really honest was like him questioning himself. The fact that he he wasn't saying, I didn't do it. He was saying, I just don't think I could have. I really mauled this.
4: I do know I'm crazy, but killing crazy? Charles told Giglio for the 2010 piece. He said Sergeant Allen, quote, planted the seed. Did I do that? A long time I was walking around with that guilt. Did I do it? When we met Charles, he was no longer questioning whether he had killed Franklin. He is adamant that he didn't. But it's not entirely clear when or how he turned that corner. The one thing he comes back to time and again is that he said what he said to protect Mary Alice.
1: What do you remember, I suppose, about about this confession and 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 sort of how you came to think about it, you know, when you realized that you had confessed to this? And and sort of, I guess it's a little unclear to me, like, how you came to realize, it, how, how this all began oh, I, to sink when, in.
2: When I realized that I actually messed up mm-hmm. was when I was getting loaded into the van, getting taken to the courthouse. That's when I realized I actually messed up because of all these cops... They're saying that's that's him right there. That's him right there. everywhere I go, they say that's him, the Granny Killer. You know, that's what the one cop called me, a Granny Killer. You know, and that and that's when I started getting, you know, like more frustrated and angry. Started, started just hating everything and everyone. At that that point, right? You know. Yeah, that's that's when it really donged on me that I really fucked up. You know.
4: He said that it was while he was in jail awaiting trial that the gravity of his confession started to sink in. But he said he didn't really regret it because he'd protected Mary Alice.
2: But I got her out of there, you know. I mean, that was that was my main focus, and 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 I mean, I, I fight with that all the time. And like, one guy asked me back there, he said, "How? What, what do you regret it?" And it's a yes and no answer, you know. I mean, like, yeah, twenty seven years of this right here, I regret it, but I don't regret that she never. You know, got humiliated, humiliated by being in the strip search and fingerprinted. She don't, never went to jail. She never had the baby taken from her.
1: Was there a moment where you started either with your lawyer, or with other, just sort of insisting, like taking back your statement? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe you can describe
2: that a little bit. Okay, well, well the first time I told the, my, my attorney, Felix Cantu, I met him at the courthouse. We go up before the judge, and the judge, he says, uh, uh, how do you plead? And, and, and I said, not guilty. That's, I think that was the arraignment. And then that's when Felix was talking to me. I said, "Man, I didn't do this, man. I, I didn't kill nobody, you know." He
1: told Cantu that the cops had used Mary Alice as leverage to get him to confess, but that his confession wasn't true. He said he didn't think Cantu believed him.
2: But the last time I talked to him about it was, I just realized knew that he wasn't believing anything I said. You know, I mean, he he was well. They got the confession. They got this. You know.
1: Charles said he wanted to press the issue with Cantu, but then realized that if he started changing his story, the cops might still go after Mary Alice.
2: Then I'm listening to all them guys in the county jail, you know, telling me, man, you got to be cool, but they can still arrest her, you know, if you, if you fucking start changing your story, you know, they can. all these jailhouse t- attorneys, you know, they know everything, but they don't know nothing, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm listening to all
4: these guys talk. Did that scare you when they
2: yeah. were saying that? Yeah, it did. I, I really thought they could still arrest her. I, I never, I never, I quit talking to my attorney about it and everything, you know. I just, you know, just let it go, you know. Thinking they could still arrest her.
7: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
0: Hold up!
4: If you can't quite decide what to think of Charles's confession, that's fine. Jeff Kakuka, the confessions expert, found himself going back and
6: forth too. I found it really interesting because it, at different points in reading this, these materials, and particularly this confession and then the trial transcript, where he kind of half-heartedly reaffirms the truth of his confession, I found myself kind of going back and forth trying to figure out what kind of confession it was. There's three different types of false confessions. So there's voluntary false confessions, which is effectively the same as uncoerced, meaning you know someone gives a confession that they know is false. Well, they don't necessarily know it's false, but they do it of their own volition. And then there's two different types of coerced confessions. The key distinction between them essentially boils down to, do you know that the confession is false?
1: The first is called coerced compliant where you knowingly give the cops false information for some short-term gain.
6: So you give a confession that you know is false just to, you know, get out of the situation.
1: The second type is probably the hardest to wrap your head around.
6: The other type is an internalized, coerced, internalized false confession, where you actually come to believe that you committed the crime. The more and more I read it, I'm inclined to think that this is, in fact, an internalized confession that he does, he, he at least did at the time, even if he doesn't now, he did believe that he had actually done it or that it was you know at least very plausible that he had done it. But there are striking inconsistencies between the content of the confession and the known sort of facts of the case. It's difficult, if not impossible, to know the relative incidence of the three different types of false confessions, but anecdotally, internalized seem to be the most rare, which is not surprising, but we've known for 30 years that people can form false memories of things that didn't happen, even if those things are really vivid autobiographical events that have very real consequences.
1: Not only is memory unreliable on its own, there are factors that increase the risk of corrupting a person's memory.
6: You have the effects of social pressure and, you know, the setting, the environment of the interrogation room and the authority of the interrogating detective. Those are meaningful social pressures that can sort of foment the creation of false memories very quickly, as we see in a case like this, especially not even to mention when there's drugs and alcohol involved, right? Probably doesn't come as a surprise to anybody The drugs and alcohol impair memory. You kind of have the perfect storm here for an internalized false confession.
1: We've told you about a couple of cases where this happened. And Kukuka gave us another example, the case of Michael Crow.
6: The prototypical example of an internalized false confession that I always think of is actually a, a case of a juvenile. His name was Michael Crow. Michael Crow was 14 years old when his little sister, who was 12, was murdered in their own house. Long story short, police decided there was no sign of forced entry. Therefore, it must have been someone inside the house. Therefore, it must have been her older brother. His interrogation actually was recorded, and you can watch excerpts from it on YouTube. Hypothetically.
3: Could that have happened? No, but I know. Not that you know of. I, like I said, I would have to be completely unaware of it.
6: Okay. <laughs> have you ever blacked out before? No, never. Okay, I believe you. The interrogator sort of concocted this whole narrative about how he was jealous of his sister, and he decided he wanted to, you know, get rid of her. And he insists, you know, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. And what the interrogators did is they sort of manufactured this vulnerability in his memory. And they said, well, you know, sometimes people do things while they're sleeping and they don't remember that they did it. They effectively convinced him that he he did it in the middle of the night that he was sleepwalking and, and he didn't even remember it. And he actually, you know, did come to believe that he had actually done this. And he um, even implicated two of his friends who had nothing to do with it whatsoever. In a case like that, the vulnerability arguably is is the fact that they're interrogating a juvenile, right? And juveniles are, are, their memories are more more malleable and they're more vulnerable to social pressures and all those things. But even so, they had to sort of manufacture this memory vulnerability.
1: In Charles's case, he said, they wouldn't even have had to do that.
6: The guy had been had drinking, doing drugs. I mean, he already sort of came into the interrogation room with this added vulnerability of, well, I'm not entirely sure what happened. So they very well could have exploited that to get him to agree to just about anything probably at that point.
4: And there's another difference between Charles Raby and Michael Crow.
6: Thankfully that he was never convicted. They found the real killer through DNA evidence before his trial. We
1: spent a lot of time trying to unravel Charles' confession and figure out where he was, when, and who might have seen him on the day Edna Franklin was murdered. There are people who saw him earlier that day and testified at trial. Like the woman who said he sat on her porch cleaning his nails with a pocket knife. But there are also people who saw or talked to him that night after the murder had taken place who weren't called to testify, including Timothy. People call him Timmy. We met him at a noisy Starbucks.
8: My name is Timothy James Ferrier. Uh, yeah, I'm Charles' Charles's younger half brother.
1: He saw Charles that night at the home their mom and grandmother shared in Northeast Houston. He was about 10 years old.
8: I mean, I can remember him coming into the door, you know what I mean? I mean, I didn't see not a, no blood whatsoever. It was just a sweat stain. Like he had been walking for miles, you know, from wherever he was at, you know, I, but I can't even remember what time it was. I, you know, my mother was at work. I believe that night I was, you know, I didn't want to go to bed. And I was you know, trying to stay up late, you know, trying not to go to school tomorrow probably. But, uh, uh, but, uh, and then he, yeah, heard a knock on the door. Uh, you know, who is it? Who is it? It's Charles, it's me. You know, your brother. Oh, okay.
1: Timmy described Charles's behavior that night as normal. He said he looked sweaty from walking, but there were no signs that he'd been in a fight or anything. At one point while they were talking, Charles called Mary Alice.
8: I vaguely remember that, and uh, I think she had asked him what, t- what he was drinking, and I think she had said it was a beer and but it was in fact water and and i just so vaguely from remember that i mean i can't say that's the biggest thing i remember but i kind of remember having a short interaction with him in the kitchen and then shortly after i went back to
4: bed and then i couldn't tell you what happened the next day you know it's just been so long ago given what Kakuko was saying about the fallibility of memory there's reason to question Timmy's recollection, which he acknowledges is fuzzy. But where the basic facts are concerned, Mary Alice's recollections have been consistent, and they corroborate Timmy's account, that nothing seemed off about Charles the night that Franklin was murdered. Mary Alice said that she hadn't heard from Charles all day. Then, around 10 p.m., her phone rang.
0: I asked him, Mom. You know where are you? He said, it's "My grandma's house." And I said, uh, "I said I guess I, I probably doubted him." I said, "Are you sure?" You know. And he goes, "Yeah." He goes, "Timmy's right here. He can tell you." And that's when I heard him. And then I said, uh, "I can't remember what he joked about." And then he said, uh, "I said, Are you drinking?" And then he goes, "He goes, No." He goes, "Timmy." He goes, "Do I got a beer in my hand?" And I said, "You know what I mean? Have you been drinking?" And then uh, he goes. A couple you know a little bit and, and uh and so i heard t- timmy he said no well do i got to be on my hand he was no I said, all right and so go to bed you know and he was at my house early the next morning
4: and how was he the next morning do you remember just normal or what was that next mm-hmm. day like
0: just just i feel like it was this day just normal
4: With the unreliability of the confession, the lack of physical evidence connecting Charles to the murder, and the lackluster representation he got at trial, there are plenty of reasons to question the case against Charles Raby.
1: But there's an even bigger one. One that doesn't come to light until 2006, 14 years after the murder. DNA. An unknown male profile found in blood caked under the fingernails of Edna Franklin's left hand. It doesn't match Charles Raby or her grandsons,
4: Eric Benj and Lee Rose. On the next episode of Murderville, Texas DNA, the Houston Police Crime Lab, and what Charles's jury didn't know.
2: This is a really uh, vicious. Attack. I mean, it's what we we usually refer to as overkill. In other words, not somebody that just kills somebody, but they just really produce injuries upon injuries upon injuries intentionally.
1: You would have to be incompetent as a scientist to believe that that was an inconclusive result. Um, The other possibility is that you were lying.
0: It just seemed like they were bending over to affirm the death convictions.
1: Murderville, Texas is a production of The Intercept and First Look Media. Andrea Jones is our story editor. Julia Scott is senior producer. Truk Nguyen is our podcast fellow. Laura Flynn is supervising producer. Fact-checking by Miri Jesuthasen. Special thanks to Jack D'Isidoro and Holly DeMuth for additional production assistance. Voice acting in this episode by Dan Triandiflo and Jake McCready. Our show was mixed by Rick Kwan with original music by Zach Young. Legal Review by David Braylow. Executive producers are Roger Hodge and Christy Gressman. For The Intercept... Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief. I'm Liliana Segura.
4: And I'm Jordan Smith. You can read show transcripts and see photos at theintercept.com slash murderville. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Liliana Segura and at chronic underscore Jordan. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash donate. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already please subscribe to the show. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at the Thanks so much for listening.